Welcome to episode 176 of Control the Controllables and happy International Podcast Day as we release our episode 176. We once again have got an amazing guest for you. We talk all the time about tennis reflecting life and life reflecting tennis and there's no better guest than Ryan Penniston to tell us all about that. I've seen a lot of uh what's happened to you know families um that have had that you know cancer it's become a, a part of their lives as well so yeah i feel lucky lucky and grateful to to be able to you know still be standing here and you know be able to to go about and, and play some tennis and a truly inspirational story that ryan tells and now here he is age 27 He's had a breakthrough year on the ATP Tour. He's had wins over Casper Ruud, Jack Draper, Manorino. You know, the list goes on. He really did have an incredible grass court season. And he's someone who I was lucky to know personally a few years ago. I say a few years ago. It was 11 years ago when he came to Soto Tennis Academy with his good buddy, Rob Carter, who was training at the academy as a full-time player at the time. And... Ryan was a skillful little boy. You know, he didn't do a whole lot with the ball in terms of power, but he was developing his skills. He was getting beat up by those boys, Rob Carter, Liam Brody, Josh Ward-Hibbert. But he kept putting himself out there. He kept turning up every single day. And it's a true story of progression, of continuous development. And he tells it so well. And I'm excited to pass you over to Ryan Penniston. So Ryan Penniston, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Cheers, cheers. Yeah, no, doing good. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, it's, I feel like I was chasing a, a girlfriend when I was younger. You know, trying to <laughs> try, trying to get that trying to get that date, and uh, fin- <laughs> finally I've got my man. So you 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 haven't been an easy cookie to get a hold of. What's that for? Is that are you avoiding me or just a busy life? <laughs> <laughs> just a busy life mate yeah yeah no it's been it's been yeah definitely busy training and getting back to you know tournament schedules and uh but no it's been it's been good and and ryan to to start with and the we've gone lots of different routes i guess on the on the podcast but traditionally and i think with someone like you i think you had such an interesting story from all, all the way through and you know in particular the fact that you weren't number one in the world junior you you didn't necessarily have the junior profile that was that was going on to to have the results that you've had but going to the very beginning and the the very start and a lot of people might not know yeah. this about you um but age one you know got the illness cancer survived cancer at that age i'm sure you don't remember much of it yourself but but now that you're an adult and you've got your adult life Tell us about that period and, you know, how it was for your parents and and just the impact of that, I guess, positive impact or, or negative impacts on, on, on your life because of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, it's a huge, it is a huge part of my life. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't remember much of it when I was younger. But yeah, I mean, the impact it's had on me and my family and, you know, friends and people around me, it's it's been massive. Um, it's such a such a tough thing to go through um at any age but yeah as a kid I think my parents they went for a a really tough time um 
and yeah I don't I don't remember much of it and I only really started to you know ask and try and find out about it when I was a teenager um, just because I started to start to realize the the kind of gravity of the situation how how big it was um how 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 ill, yeah, did, how ill did you get um i got pretty ill i mean i i i was diagnosed with the with the cancerous tumor um and then was was kind of rushed to to a and e to to you know to get scanned and everything and then went rushed to saint bart's hospital in london um to have basically go on treatment straight away um and i had yeah bouts of of chemotherapy and lost my hair and everything and and yeah there was there's definitely parts of times during all the treatment and everything when when it was you know almost touch and go um, yeah. you know it was pretty serious so yeah pretty pretty brutal for my my parents for sure and how's that I mean I know I know your dad and your dad's a great mm. guy and obviously you have a very very close relationship with him and he's he's been a big part big part of your tennis and it, yeah. how's, how how do you think that's affected the relationship? I would imagine in a positive way, but with with your parents, um, I think it's just made us closer. Um, definitely. I mean, obviously, you know, a parent cares about their child, um, and I think when something like that comes along, you know, cancer, um, it just turns their their whole world upside down, really. So yeah, it's just uh, it's made us really close. Um, you know, sometimes they they can be a bit protective. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, think I would imagine they've that. developed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, not not crazy. So it's uh, it's okay. But no, they yeah, we're we're definitely close, and we yeah we we keep in touch a lot, even even now when I'm you know on the road. Yeah, because I think traumas that, that lots of people have traumas in their life, and I guess. As you get to the stage you are now, age twenty-seven or coming up to twenty-seven, yeah, are you able to almost view that as with with some gratitude now, in some ways that that's that's your journey, that's your story, it, it, that is who you are, and in some ways that's then led to who who you've become. Yeah, I think gratitude's a, a, yeah definitely the word. Um, I just because I've I've seen a lot of. Uh, what's happened to you know families um, that have had that you know cancer? Um, it's it's become a, a part of their lives as well. So yeah, I feel lucky, lucky and grateful to to be able to you know still be standing here and you know be able to to go about and, and play some tennis. And from a physical standpoint, as we start to move into the bit when you started tennis, was there any? any side effects, anything that maybe stopped you from getting involved in sport from a young age? Like at, at what point were you, were you healthy and, and what were the potential mm. side effects of you having, having chemotherapy and, and going through that? Yeah. So it definitely had side effects um, when I was growing up as a kid and, and a teenager. Um, I mean, I, I, re- I recovered quite well, quite quickly. Um you know, from age when I was a toddler, so three, four years old, I was, you know, in, in nursery and starting off school and I was 
I was a little bit smaller than the kids, but I would always get involved with with games and you know playing football and yep. in the field and um and it only started more when I was you know coming up to ten years old and then through my early teens that the the size uh, difference made a made quite a big impact, especially in tennis um because of the chemo i I started growing really late um so I was and you probably you probably remember I was uh probably about a foot smaller yeah. than than all the other kids up until the age of fifteen yeah um, so that made a big big impact on me in in tennis and and as a person really um, yeah. it gave me you know a chance to to work on some other parts of my game some other skills um that maybe some others were weren't able to work on um but they also had you know, attributes that I I didn't have, such as like a like a big serve or big shots. Yeah, I always think because I'm I was the other way, so I was mm. age twelve. I was close to six foot, I think, and a pretty big, strong lad. And I think people always think the big person or the tall person has the advantage, whereas the grass is always greener, right? So I mm. I I actually I actually what I affected was affected with was it was actually Mark Hilton. I used to play Mark Hilton a lot. And Mark Hilton mm-hmm. was was tiny, but he was the cute kid. So so <laughs> like and I was the big monster, do you know what I mean? Whereas we were pretty much the same age, but emotionally we were the same age. And and yeah. pe- people never treated me as the kid that I was. So if I played Hilts you would feel everyone wanted the cute kid to win. You know, you would, mm. you would, adults would talk to me as if I was older than I was. Um, you know, and, and actually I, I think coordination was harder, you know, it was harder to yeah. move, harder to be agile, harder to, so, so the, the, the grass is always greener. Now the, the other bit I think of it is when you are a bit smaller kid, exactly what you've alluded to there, you develop different skills. You know, you develop ways of getting yourself out of trouble. You develop ways of being able to put your opponent in trouble and stop them attacking you because eventually everyone hits it quite hard. (laughs) Eventually, you know, whereas not eventually does everyone develop skill, you know? So I, I almost think that's the, better way around because I think the bigger kid and I would be guilty of this sometimes skips a couple of a couple of bits and gets away with not having to develop getting in behind the ball or 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 defending their serve or, or whatever it might be um and that mm. all catches up so um I, I can I can I can see both sides of it as well you know and certainly you mm. as a tennis player you've developed all those attributes incredibly well yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, thanks. I, I was able to, yeah, work on what I mean. I was pretty fast as a, as a kid, um, mainly because I was, yeah, small and I had to do a lot of running. Otherwise, I wasn't going to win any points, basically. Um, but no, that's funny you mentioned that because I, yeah, I've never really, because of my personal experience, I've never really thought about you know, the the other kids that were bigger and how yeah. how it was for them. Um, but no, yeah, I, I had to had to run a lot, make a lot of balls and, you know, try and hit, like you said, difficult shots um, for them. And and tell us about your tennis bit. Where where did your tennis start? How old were you? Uh, and and give us kind of those early years. What was, what's your memory of your early tennis years? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, my first memories of, of tennis is always with my dad because he he kind of got me into the game, and yeah, they literally we had a a brick wall at the back back of our house, and I'd I'd hit you know sponge balls and and mini mini softballs against it um, just for fun, um, and then we me and my dad started playing together um, just at the, the local club. We just hit, and then yeah, he kind of coached me and and started uh started improving me and I, I started loving it um and just the the main thing for me was the competing yeah. was the part that i loved um it was all fun you know playing my dad and training and stuff but as soon as i i've played my first tournaments i was just hooked and how did that work your dad the the, the father son coach player relationship how did that work <laughs> yeah it's a father son coach relationship it's a special one for sure um you know you i think you're so close as already as a you know a parent and a, and a son but then to bring the coaching into it as well it, you know it makes you even closer but sometimes it, it can get uh it can get heated <laughs> for sure um but no there's 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 good there's a lot of good in it and uh, you know i've had some of my favorite favorite moments ever on the tennis court with my dad so um yeah it's amazing. So, what what age did your dad coach you till? Did you, and how did that transition happen into someone else being your coach? And I guess the final yeah. bit of that is how was that process? Was it easy for your dad to let go? Yeah, I mean, he he coached me literally from yeah when I when I picked up a racket when I was three years old to oh up up until um, kind of end of twenty twenty. Um, when I started working with Mark Taylor. Um, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I went to. I obviously went to. Uh, I went to a tennis academy in France um, yeah. when I was at the age of thirteen, um, for five years until until I was eighteen years old. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I had coaches there at the academy, but my dad would be, you know, the main point of contact for me, the main, literally the main coach. Um, yeah. You know, and he'd help in my game and everything. And then I, even when I came home at eighteen, I, I went pretty much straight off to to uni, to college in America, um, to Memphis. So, and he would still, I'd have the same thing. I'd have a head coach and assistant coach there, and he'd he'd still help me out in my game. Um, so it was only back in the year twenty twenty when I'd been on the on the tour for for just over a year and a half. Um, uh, yeah, I started working with Mark. Well, you've gone from 400 in the world up to 137 since that's happened. So, is this? Do you now? Do you now say, "Hey, Dad, why didn't you get me up to?" <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't give him too much stick for it. <laughs> but on that, the, the bit I want to before, I'd, I'd love to jump into a little bit on college because I think it's a uh, yeah. There's so many people that are listening to this that are unsure about his college the way is this but but the before then what one one thing i love about your story and i remember you being out at the academy with rob you know if we go yeah. back kind of 2010 2010 2011 sort of period and uh, i believe your, your your best itf junior ranking was around 460 um interestingly when i was looking at that i saw back in 2011 you beat Bonzi in a grade five in France. <laughs> I still always, remember that match. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it's, it's always yeah. interesting because you know that's a grade that's a grade five, 
you know, and at the time and 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 you're you're 16, 17 years old. He's he's similar sort of age, you know, and you're playing you're playing grade five ITFs. And you know, I think we can sometimes have this snobbish outlook on tennis that if you're 17 and you're playing grade five ITFs, you're obviously not very good. You know, it's that it's that kind yeah, of it's, it's it's that sort of outlook. So you're one of the ones because the other, I guess you're a bit of an outlier because the statistics also do back that up to a degree. Yeah. So, so as an outlier, my, 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 my question to you and to get into your head a little bit here, how, how have you been able to be relatively normal as a, as a junior to then get to the point where you're, you're beating players top 50 in the world from a mental point of view, more, almost more than anything. And to those that are listening, you know, I think it's important that they know it is possible. So how have you made that possible? For me, I think the biggest thing that's helped me in my journey, my tennis journey, it's been taking small steps. Um, you always have, as a kid, you always have those those big goals and those big dreams. But you know, they see, sometimes they seem so far away. Um, and it's just, I think, something I, I've been able to do, you know, since the juniors, just take those little steps. Just you know, one one win here, um, you know, one goal achieved, and you just bit by bit, you just get closer, closer and closer to where you 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 want to be. Um, and yeah, it's just about doing that day in day out for me on the on the practice court, especially. Um, just trying to be better every day. It sounds it sounds so cliche, but literally, yeah, every day trying to focus on something, try and improve something, um, and just get you closer to to where you want to be. But Ryan, you're you're living proof of that, and. I, I use you as an example a lot within the academy. I really do because for me, you're you're the role model and type of role model that players should be looking up to. You know, I think I think Carlos Alcaraz isn't, you know, because that's <laughs> you know, that's the generational talent that just flies through and cuts cuts through the the rankings like a like a, a knife through butter. That's that's not normal. That's not the, the the way in our sport. But not many people have the patience, the resilience, the perseverance to to continue just making those developments. And you know, I again had a little look from you coming out of college after year one nine four four, year two five seven two, year three three eight nine, then three seven eight, two six eight, then currently one three seven. That that byproduct of your day in day out mentality has has led to the, the the level just gradually getting better and then the ranking goes with and yet but that's such a long process so how have you been able to stick to that process has there been times when your head's gone to doubt fear i can't do it or uh, and how have you then been able to lock back into the present moment to, to really do that because I think that's the secret in this sport you know so someone who's doing it and done that I'd love to know how you've been able to do that yeah I mean 100% like when I was a junior for instance um, I'd have I'd have days you know I'd have 
matches that I lost and I'd be getting down about them. I I think, you know, I was I mean I was I was a foot smaller than than a lot of the kids. Um so I, I think I was never gonna be one of those, you know, top number one junior in the world to then go and you know, straight into ATPs and Grand Slams. Um so yeah, I'd I'd have matches where or I'd lose and I'd I'd you know want to give up. It's this that that simple. And then it's just I think it's just that little voice that little voice inside of you that that keep tells you to keep fighting, keep going, um, and you just have to try and make that voice as loud as possible. Yep. You just have to keep keep going, keep pushing, and you know take the little wins as they come along. Um, don't definitely don't overlook those. It can literally be the smallest thing in in practice. You can improve, you know, one one shot or even just improve something you're doing. Maybe you're working on you're hitting targets or hitting cones, and you hit one of them that you, something you didn't do before. Yeah, um, and you just yeah you shouldn't overlook those um, and those use those to, to kind of keep pushing you on. Very good. Great advice. And and in terms of again, one of my beliefs, one of one of my beliefs around junior tennis is why I like it. And I I like players to go along a junior journey, not because it's defining, but because if you play Grand Slam juniors, it gives you it gives you motivation, inspiration. It kind of gives you a bit of a taste of what you want. But also this this feeling of belonging. You know, and I, I always I've used as as an example quite a lot on this podcast. Like Liam Brody, you 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 walked into Wimbledon with Liam Brody and Kyrgios's Broads, how you doing? <laughs> and Dominic T because of the relationships they had in the juniors. Now, have you experienced any imposter syndrome as you've tried to make the way through? Because I think that also is a challenge that's bigger than people realize sometimes when you don't come with the with the top world class junior pedigree. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've walked into to locker rooms and and been thinking, oh, what like kind of what's going on here? You know, this is this is new yeah. to me. These are these yeah. are new faces that I'm seeing, and yeah, it definitely has an impact when you when you truly start to feel that you you belong um, at a certain stage at a certain level. It just it changes your mindset. And it it can definitely sh- you know shine through, um. But no, I've I've def- I've had that definitely um at, at many levels. I think even when I was just before I went to college as a as a seventeen eighteen year old, I'd I'd be playing futures, and I'd lose you know in in last round of qualities and qualify for a few of them, but then I'd I'd be thinking you know part of me would be thinking oh don't don't quite belong at this level and then like i said before you just you just make those little little improvements and you get you get one one or two wins here and you, your whole mindset changes and from a from an internal dialogue standpoint and i love what you're saying about making that voice a bit louder you know sometimes sometimes the voice is too loud when it's feeding us negative but when you're trying to hmm. trying to talk yourself up from an internal dialogue standpoint, how how did you overcome imposter syndrome? Because I think that imposter syndrome stops a lot of people, whether it's in tennis or whether it's in life. So have you got any examples of how you were able to overcome that? 
Um, yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, there's always, there's always that that cliche saying of fake it till you make it. So having that little voice and just trying to make it louder, that that the positive voice, the one that's pushing you on, you can keep doing that. You can keep making it louder and, until you achieve something and you can actually make yourself believe these things. You know, some people always say, oh, I believe I can do this and believing and do that. And they don't, you know, truly believe it. Yeah. Um, and I've found that, yeah, just continuing to, to keep on pushing and taking those little wins helps you to then get to the point of truly actually believing it. Because it's, it's such an interesting topic. Like we, we've got somebody right now, a player that we're, we're working with, and they have a brilliant forehand, but the backhand is in development. Yeah, so a youngish player. And working with the psychologist, one of the things they're, they're talking about is this voice and trying to get, you know, to feed feed yourself, your backhand's your best shot, your backhand's your best shot. And this player's saying to me, well, that's bullshit. It's not. I can't believe it. Like, like I, mm. I, I can't say it. I, if I keep saying it, I actually then, I actually then think it's even more nonsense because it's like, I know it's not. <laughs> I've got a great mm. four. I've got a great forehand. So, so I've actually spoken to the psychologist and said, well, look, can we change that to maybe, you know, affirmations and all of these things are, are, are brilliant, but can we change it to, you know, my backhand is, is an excellent shot that is used to then bring in my forehand or, you know, something that it's within the range of believability <laughs> because I mm. think if it's, it, we can't just, just believe like I I can't believe yeah. that I look like Brad Pitt I don't do you know what I mean I I, I, <laughs> I have to look at myself in the mirror every day you know but you know so so that but there might be certain things that would help me believe a, a certain bit so I, I guess my, my, my point being and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that it, it can't just be just telling ourselves lies <laughs> there has to be a, a yeah. level there has to be a level of belief in there as well so you you obviously had that level of belief in there from from a young age or is that something that's gradually grown as well uh i'd say both to be honest i mean yeah. i i do feel like i've had that little that little bit of belief that that true belief somewhere deep deep in there yeah since i since i was a, a youngster and it's it's when you keep on pushing that 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 belief just gets gradually just a tiny bit bigger each time um, until you know one day a few years down the track you 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 won't even realize that you you've yeah. become so big that you, you truly you truly believe it and that's yeah that's that's been kind of my my journey with that that's the compound habits bit that and you're you are a living proof of that like everything I think we need to call this podcast, you know, gradual improvement or something along those lines, because, <laughs> you know, that's that's the bit that seems to uh, epitomize what you've done, you know, in your career is like just taking the little steps, little steps, little steps, little steps. And there's a there's a great picture. I, I, I like visuals and there's a great picture of there's two steps two step ladders side by side. 
And one mm. step ladder has, you know, there's massive distance between the steps and you've got these little kids trying to, and they can't get there. They can't get to the next rung. And then you've got another kid side by side. That's the steps are very manageable and they're making the way and, and obviously climbing the way to the top. And, and as you're speaking, Ryan, that's, that's kind of coming through loud and clear that what you, what you represent you know, and that's brilliant. Yeah. So, is that, so my last question before I move into college on that mm. is, is that something that you've been taught? You know, is that something you've been taught a mindset from your dad, from a psychologist, or is that something that just naturally you've learned about yourself? Again, I think it's, it's, it's been both for me. Yeah. I think as a youngster, you know, I had people around me, like, especially my, my family, you know, my dad and my coach, he would, he would you know ask me questions he was like well you know why why don't you believe in yourself as, as you know that much and you know I, w I wouldn't be able to answer but i knew that he and my mom and my, my brothers they they all believed in me and i think i carried that as well with me along the way and i yeah. think that that's that's helped me believe in myself more um so the the people around you are definitely very important in that journey um for some people it's not some people you know they it literally comes from themselves but yeah so for, for me the yeah, people around me was was key and u.s college some people go to u.s college and they party and they you know <laughs> fall out of love with the sport you know they they maybe use it to get their degree and you know, don't don't quite do too much more, you know, whereas other people and obviously Paul Job comes to mind, you know, yourself, you know, as, as, as British players go in and just absolutely saw fly. And and it seems, you know, and I think following you as you were going to college to the player that you came out of college, it was almost unrecognizable. You know, you really took took lots of lots of little steps that that turned into a, a big step so so how how was how was that experience and and why do you think that was so successful for you yeah i mean i, I think even before i went to college um there was the the stigma of you know if you if you go to college you you're basically giving up tennis you're quitting because there yeah. there were there were obviously players that that went along that that path but yeah, there was just this whole stigma around that. And I, you know, I went on the recruiting trip and I thought, I was like, that, that's nonsense. Like, how, how can that be possible, you know, with the some of the facilities and, and the level of tennis in, in college? I was like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But I mean, the huge thing for me about college is it, it, it really does help show you what, what you really want to do um, in life whether it's, you know, you want to play tennis or whether it's you want to go into something else. And for me, that it showed me that I really wanted to play. Um, yeah. And that was a big, big turning point for me um, in in my career, really. Um, just because it's it all started to, to come from me, um, from myself, you know, like I, I had had a vision and I, I realized what I kind of had to do to work towards it. So that's where, yeah, basically I put, put my, put my mind to it. And I, I've always had this image in my head. Well, or this saying, you know, college was the place where I learned to, 
to really work hard. And that was where I started, you know, doing day in, day out um, work on myself. And that's how I, I feel like I was able to improve over those four years. And and do you feel that you got that you got lucky with where you went? Because sometimes sometimes the and I'm a big advocate of US college and and went went myself. And if you go back, I'm fifteen years older than you, imagine what the stigma was like then. You know, it was like, mm. you know, who is this? This guy's giving up. I mean, I remember the head of men's tennis speaking to me and I just won a futures and turned up to a challenger and he went, Oh, you're still playing, are you done? Well, been in college for four and a half years, actually. You know, so that and that was that was that was the reality of how it was. But but I also know that there is some bad experiences, and it it feels to me that those players that get a nice connection with a coach and and a program and the values of the program and all of those bits give themselves the best chance at chance of excelling. So was that by luck that you got the right program? Or, or do you do you feel you did a good job in the research before you went? I mean, I I didn't know too much about college, hardly anything really before I went. And I went I went with I worked started working with uh, Sarah Ball to find me a college uh, to go to, and yeah, it came upon dropped on the yeah, University of Memphis, and I uh, yeah was talking to Chris Doer, the uh, assistant coach at the time and yeah he was he was giving me info and I still still had no idea no idea about college until when on my recruiting trip and then kind of saw what what it was all about and the facilities and what kind of the lifestyle would be like and I met the head coach as well on my recruiting trip and that was that was a game changer for me because yeah I, I feel pretty lucky to have to have come and along and uh, met those guys because yeah, both both Chris and Paul um, were just awesome, awesome coaches and awesome people. So I do feel lucky in that respect to to meet them. And yeah, they they were a huge part of the reason why I signed um, with Memphis. And then that that yeah that whole journey um, started, and they they were just able to to kind of help me improve on and off the court. You know, as a, as a person. And as a tennis player, um, and yeah, very very grateful for that. Because that one one of my uh, one of my beliefs, I probably shouldn't say this as a tennis coach or as an academy owner, is that players make players, and players make coaches. And <laughs> I I sometimes, and it's a bit harsh on us as coaches, but I ultimately. I, Alcaraz is, is going to be a top player in the world, whether Juan Carlos Ferreira has coached him. might take a little bit longer. Um, so for you, how important is a coach? And, you know, what, what is it you're looking from a, a, from, from a coach? And, and what impact do you, do you think a, a, a coach has? I mean, I, I think a coach is, is so important in, in the, the life of a tennis player. You know, you can have you can have coaches that that come in and out um, of your career, but the coaches that that help you learn lessons and really care about you as a not just a tennis player, I think as a person, I think they make the biggest impact. And you know, a, a coach is is someone that's trying to help you 
achieve your goals um and they you know do whatever they can to to get there to get you to that point and a lot of them have different different teaching methods and some some work with some players and some don't um but i think that if if the coach really is passionate about what they're doing and, and cares about you as a, as a person and a tennis player i think the the chance of them being able to help you achieve your dreams is is uh is improved a lot so what do you think of my statement of i believe players make players and players make coaches <laughs> um i don't have to hurry, really <laughs> Would you be a tennis player if you hadn't have had, the, and, and it was your dad for the most part, mm. but if you didn't have your have your dad, do you think you would have, I guess the point I'm trying to make and why I, I think that is, is I do yeah. think I do think the player controls their own destiny more than sometimes they, they, they think and, and quite often more than parents think. You know, and, and you know when we're getting into the micro detail, I absolutely believe coaches have impact one hundred percent, and they're an important part. But but for me, Ryan Peniston, I would think you being who you are would have found your journey with coaches supporting you along that mm. way, rather than it being that. It's the it's just that it's the coach that's the coach that's done that, and if you were the wrong coach, that wouldn't have happened. And 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 I think the second part of that for for me is coaches that work with the best players often are seen as the best coaches, which doesn't it doesn't always add up because you know if you're mm. the, the the player does very well because they're just a super talent and they've got this super amazing mind then the reputation of the coach goes through the roof <laughs> and it's like that must be the best coach because they're working with the best player so i guess that that yeah. statement there's a bit of context to that so so just when i speak yeah. to players i like to i like to understand from the players you know i'm not saying that they're not impactful but i guess the better question might be would you be a professional tennis player of 130 in the world if you'd had to struggle a bit and find different coaches along the way? Or do you think, actually, no, there was no chance I couldn't have done it without having that support in this instance from from your dad and then Mark Taylor the last couple of years? Well, it's a, t it's a tough question to think about. Um, I think, without first of all, without my dad, I don't think I would ever have picked up a tennis racket. So... In that respect, I think, yeah, and even without, without yeah. him, uh, I wouldn't be a tennis fan. I wouldn't wouldn't have, um, you know, been able to do what I've been able to do so far. But yeah, I think there's definitely a certain part of me that would that would have found a way to to achieve something. But no, it without my dad and without Mark Taylor for the last, yeah so and so years i think uh i don't think i would have been able to get there that's that's my view yeah i think it's always an interesting it's an interesting topic and look at i think ultimately coaches are incredibly important 
But I, I, I also think players do control their destiny a little bit more than we give them credit for at, at times as mm. well. But, but on that, are there any regrets that you've had in, in your career? Like if you could go back and go, do you know what? I wish I hadn't done that. Or I wish I had done that. Uh, it, 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 at a certain moment, like I've had players on here saying, I wish I'd changed coach at a certain time, or I wish I'd uh, moved country, whatever it might be. Is there, is there anything that you could pinpoint that, that maybe you regret? And if you had that decision again, you would have made a different decision. I think that when I was 13, when I went to the Academy in France, um, there was always a part of me during those five years that I was there um, that would think what would have happened if I if I didn't come to France to attend the academy, um, if I would stayed in England, and if I kept going to the same secondary school, and you know kept kept uh, my my same friends, and and you know went that route, and maybe trained in England for a bit, but. You can, I mean, you can have those thoughts about anything, any any decision you make, any big big decision. What what if and what would have happened um, if I did something differently? But I just try and see the the positive in in what I what I did. You know, I was able to, I was fortunate enough to keep training and playing tennis every day. My my whole my life changed basically. I met I met a whole new group of people. Um, new group of friends and yeah my life definitely wouldn't have been the same and I think the biggest thing that came from those five years were, were my my love for the game and interest in in the sport was was still there yeah um so I you know when I was eight went went to college afterwards I still had that that fire inside but yeah that that for me that's that's the the only thing really that I can think of that I thought, what if? Yeah, but that's a great thing as well, and I think it's it's again in our sport that's often not talked about enough that that inner fire, that inner burn, which isn't always easy to keep alight. You know, if we especially now, it's getting younger. I mean, it's getting younger and young. I mean, I'm dealing with ten, eleven year olds and their parents now that are complaining that. You know, they they've done the wrong stretch of their hamstring, or they've done the you know like the detail to to yeah. which to which the sport has now gone to. But where I think we have to be careful, and again, it's where I think you're a great story is you've gradually burned that flame. It's just it stayed alight, it stayed alight at different parts of your career. You've really got the burners on, and and made those made those made those big strides. But ultimately, that that motivation, discipline, that purpose, that desire has has remained there. And we've got to be careful we don't burn that out. And and that would be something that I'm sure if you go back and you think of your junior days, how many how many of your I guess contemporaries are still playing now that were some of the better players in France and in the UK at that age. Yeah, I mean, hard, hardly any of them from from those days, um, and it's in, in some of the cases I find it you know quite sad just to see them. You know, not not necessarily that they didn't go on to play um, professionally or, or you know um, more of the the part. I think they, I'd say, 
probably with confidence that some of them don't don't pick up a racket at all anymore. Yeah. I and mean, it's just that that desire and that love for the game turns into something negative, which is uh which is the part that I find quite sad. Absolutely. And 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 it happens all too much and it's it's the risk and reward, you know, and for parents out there, be careful that you don't have your eyes on the reward too much, that you take such a risk that that that, that the fire burns, you know, and the this story of of gradual, you know, just keep keep going day in, day out is 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 the story to copy in in my opinion. But Ryan, I want to move into my last big topic before the quick fire round is 2022, you know, and I think anyone in the tennis outside of the tennis world or kind of loosely follows tennis would have no idea who Ryan Penniston was 12 months ago, you know, and all of a sudden you were on our screens, you know, you had an incredible, incredible summer, you know, on the grass courts and from Manorino, Draper, Vesely, Rude, Serendolo, Rune, Martinez, you know, these, these names, it wasn't one win. You know, it wasn't two wins. It was it was you showing re- repeatable level uh, against some of the some of the best players in the world. So, talk us through that period. It was, and and as you went into that period, did you feel ready to to make that step? You know, was it a surprise to you, um, or or was it like, do you know what? No, I'm starting to feel like I belong here, and 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 belong. You certainly did. So, talk to us about the summer of 2022. Yes, yeah, summer summer twenty two is pretty special, pretty special for me. Um, and yeah, but I didn't didn't see it coming, to be honest. To be a hundred percent honest, um, and I just like like I kind of talked about before. It was just the the kind of slow progressions. I mean, this this one for me, the summer was was a pretty big big step up. That just kind of came came from nowhere, but then I, I say from nowhere. But I was also, you know, working towards those things for, for so long. Um, I had the, you know, the image of of playing at Wimbledon for the last, you know, basically since I was a kid. So that that had been fueling that fire for for a long time. Um, but no, it was <laughs> personally. I mean. Before the grass season even happened, I I was playing on the clay, um, and I just just where lost in the Czech Republic, I lost the challenger, and then the next week I was in France for for French qualies, and I took a took a bad beating first round of of qualies there, um, and you know I I came back home and went onto the grass and just started training a little bit and you know if you'd have told me then the kind of summer I'd have um you know I wouldn't I wouldn't have believed you for sure but then I just played went to Surbiton and played the first challenger and got got drawn against Manorino first round and um even even then lost the first set 6-2 um was a little bit nervous and managed to to try and like stay positive managed to to sneak a break and then it kind of all all kind of spiraled from there it just uh you know one win my first kind of top 100 win there and then 
went on from there to, to to playing some some other great players and and being able to to get some wins against them. So yeah, it was a roller coaster for me, and uh, yeah, pretty pretty grateful that it happened. Yeah, when I when you played Casper Ruud, I thought he's going to lose this because he only beats lefties. You know, you started <laughs> the, the, grass, the grass court season. It you know the Manorino, Draper, and then Vesely. It was like, nah, he's got no chance. And then, obviously, be, beating beating Rude after after French Open, and we, we we talk about this like belonging, this belief system, this when you're starting to consistently because many players, British players over the years, have had their their moment, their moment of glory, and their big result. But when it's six, seven, eight guys over a period, it, it must play strongly into that belief system and that belonging. Yeah, it played it played hugely into into the the belief part um, and the belonging part. I can I think came came afterwards, but it was mainly the belief part when it, you just get one of those wins and then it. It increases, and then you you know you you step on the court for the next one against another top hundred player, and it your belief you just you feel that it's it's a bit bigger than last time, and that just just fills you with with a, quite a lot of confidence, which you can just use in the in those tight moments. And a slightly harsh question, Ryan. Fire away. <laughs> the cynics will say. It's on grass. And if I could share a quick story, I was sharing a, a room with with Johnny Murray. We were living when the National Tennis Centre was Queen's Club. And we were living behind Queen's Club. And Johnny Johnny was playing um at Queen's and he had a he was having an, a, this great run and he ended up losing to Leighton Hewitt in the third round, seven six, seven six, had five set points in both sets, and he got a standing ovation. From the from the Queens Club crowd, and we walked up, and I guess I was I was playing doubles with him, so we I was kind of that that matey coach walked up the steps, and as we walked up the steps, I just heard Leighton Hewitt kind of turn and say to somebody, "What the f's going on here? That like you lost." And then he walked into the press conference. And he said, well, let's see what this guy's doing the next nine months when he's off the grass courts. You know, and it was a really harsh comment, but it was a true comment because because Johnny probably didn't have those same results on, on any other surface. So the cynic out there is going, okay, brilliant, Ryan. Well done, mate. Unbelievable. Can you do it on a different court surface? Can you do it outside of the summer in the UK? So what's what's your response to that? Apart from screwing, yeah, you, I mean, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a good question. I mean, valid question. I, I think that critics are always going to try and look for something to to put you down and, and be negative about. But it's definitely it's a hundred percent a valid question, and I, I think that personally, I think that I'm going to use that as just even more motivation to to prove people that. That I can beat these players, not just on grass, you know, and that's something that I'm gonna gonna fuel my fire with, um, and yeah, take it onto onto hard courts and, and clay courts. 
when you get those big wins on the hard courts, I want to hashtag screw you, Dan. You know, like I want. You get it. I want to be. I want to be part of this journey, even if I'm the voodoo doll that you're sticking the sticking the knife into. But the the, the next part of that question, and again, we know with tennis, ma- management of expectations is massive, and you know you're you're a pretty seasoned guy now. You've been you've been around, and you've made those gradual progressions. But when you have such a, and to, to those listening, you might not know this, but because it's a rolling ranking, when you have such a, a heavy period of success, which feels great at that time, when that next comes around the following year, that then becomes a period where you're having to win lots of matches just to stay the same, you know, rather than that feeling of winning the matches to, to, to see your ranking improve. So how, how will you approach that from a from a mentality point of view next summer? Yeah, I think there's I mean there's there's some there's quite a few player tennis players out there. I think that you know when they when they have a big result or they do they do well in a tournament, they they you know straight away think about defending those points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard it come up in conversation. They they literally will come off the court. Um, <laughs> You know, after after a big win or, or, or something like that, and be like, "Oh shit, got, got to defend those points in, in a year's time." Um, but I think that's it's it's a pretty it's a pretty negative way of looking at it, um, and it comes to a point, you know, when you're when you're a tennis player, when you 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 play so many matches, so many tennis matches, and I think that the point when you start to become proper professional, you know, is, is the guys that, you know, playing week in, week out, the same, the same, the, the, the consistency. And they're, they're literally, they're treating every point the same. Um, they're not thinking about, you know, points or, or so-and-so. And I think when you, when you can reach that level, um, it makes, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So, absolutely. you know, obviously that, that's something I, yeah, something that I want to get to, and um, and I can also use it as a challenge as well. Um, to try and yeah, do do the best I can. And what's the goal for the rest of twenty twenty two? Goal, um, I mean, a good goal of mine I would like to have is to try and try and make the the main draw um, of Australian Open. I think that'd be a good goal. Uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a big one for me at the moment, and just try and yeah, like I've been doing, take take every week and every every match uh, the same as I can. And last question before our famous quick fire round, Ryan. What would life after tennis look like for you after tennis? But not that I'm trying to wish your career away. You're still you're still a young pup. I mean, fed fed. Only retired just last week at age forty-one, so you've got ple- <laughs> plenty more, plenty more legs in this career. But yeah, what what could you see yourself doing after life as a tennis player? Um, I get asked that quite a lot, um, and <laughs> uh, it started to make me think. Oh, maybe people think I'm going <laughs> to hang my rackets up soon. Um, but no, I mean, <sighs> a, a big one that draws draws a uh, passion for me. I mean, a lot of people say, but I I love food. Yeah, I'm a bit. Uh, I I love you know cooking it and 
just the the different cultures and how they so something that had something related to that i think would be awesome um whether it's travel blogging or even having maybe even like a food show in the, in the future um i think it would be amazing we'll have to get thinking maybe any any of the listeners got any ideas maybe some brand names or you know this is i know it's not going to happen <laughs> for a while but you you get some downtime as tennis players so now's the time to to also be uh, be using the brainstorming before before when you're fully in and your time's eaten up every minute, then you you won't have the time. Ryan, you're you're a star. I've 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 loved chatting to you, you know, and I I know you're in Korea right now, so I really appreciate you you giving me the the time and you know giving the listeners that insight. I'm sure everyone's absolutely loved listening to you. So, um, but before you go, quick fire round. Are you ready? <laughs> ready. What does control the controllables mean to you? It means focusing on the things that you can take care of. Things that outside of the box that, you know, you have no you take control over, no uh, care of, no control. Um, don't put any of your mind towards them. And what are those things for you? like quick fire what are those those things that you're controlling on a day you've said it a few times and i love that day in day out what what are those what are those key things for you key things are how other people are acting how other people are playing behaving the number one thing that you can control yourself is your attitude and your mindset towards things um you can't control necessarily some what someone else is thinking so putting your energy towards that is not going to be useful to to you forehand or backhand forehand serve or return return singles or doubles singles college or pro college rafa or roger rafa Come on, you can't say that in the week that Roger's retired. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Rog. Uh, your toughest ever opponent. Toughest ever opponent. Oh. That's just a tough one for me. Who jumps? Can't, who, can't who... think. Gotta say rude. Why? What was so tough about him? Uh just feel his level was, was pretty high, his base level. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Net cord or not? Net cord. So you'd go college rules, would you? Uh, you got you got to go college rules. <laughs> <laughs> Medical timeout or not? No. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. But I, you're the first player that said no. Every other player said yes. Everyone said yes. Every player. Everyone that's not a player said no. So people that have think a medical timeout. Every other player that's been on has said that they should have. So let me rephrase the question. Should you be allowed medical timeouts or not? And all players have said you should be allowed them. No. Okay, stick to it. I, I'm I'm with you. No. I think I think it's played. I think it's too I think it opens up too much of a of a of a of an area. 
that can be yeah. that can be manipulated. I really do. And if someone's if, if someone's that injured, they're that injured. If somebody needs medical help, they shouldn't be playing a tennis match. Go into the locker room and have medical help. Uh, yeah. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis that's not the medical timeout rule? Or the let rule. Or the let rule. I'm not letting you change. We've answered that. <laughs> uh, I think stick a short juice in there. This is, listen to this one. This is what somebody said the other day, and I loved it. It was Neville Godwin, actually, that said this. Mm. He said lefties should start service games serving on the ad side. Interesting. And and he said the big points on the ad side, so it's an advantage yeah. being a lefty. And it's the first time I've heard it, but I, I agree with it. So what, what we're saying, I'm speaking to a lefty. Is it an advantage? Yeah. Do you feel it's an advantage? And would that take the advantage away? I think it is an advantage. Um, and yeah, it would. So hey, don't 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 speak too loudly if the so, ATP are listening. <laughs> <laughs> so as a as a lefty, don't change that one. Thanks. <laughs> and and who should our next guest be on control the controllables? You are you are taking over the role of the agent at this point. So you have to produce. Okay. Don't I'm just don't just fire. Just don't like people are firing out like Roger Federer and they're just not getting them. You know what I mean? Okay, no, no, no. no. Who, um who? I'm gonna fire someone I train with. Uh Alistair Gray. Alistair Gray. Let's get it, let's get it on. He'd, he'd be he'd be he'd be a great great guest to have. So I'll be in touch with you, Ryan. After that, uh, we'll get Alistair Gray on in the next few weeks. Uh, but all the best. I know you're out in Asia the next four weeks. Um, yeah, for me, my big takeaway here. I, I I love your mindset. You you're in. You can tell. I can always tell when I speak to you guys where where mindsets are at. You know you you're content. You you belong at this level, the ATP level and above. You know, keep rocking it. You know, there's a lot of people that are supporting you that you won't even realize. And and, and I'm one of them, mate. So thank you for coming on and, and all the best. Thanks a lot for having me, Dan. It's been awesome. And I hope you feel as inspired as I do listening to Ryan's story. You know, an incredible story. And I, and only the beginning for Ryan. You know, I have no doubt he's gonna keep going with his tennis playing career, but also beyond. And we need to remember that. This is not just about what a ranking is at the end of a career. It's about where you continue to grow. And as we talk about continuing to grow, last week saw Roger Federer come to the end of his playing career, which gave us so much. And as we discussed in our in last week's podcast, has given so much to so many people in the tennis world. And we got to celebrate. We got to, to watch, to laugh, to smile, to cry and cry and cry as <laughs> as he went through his retirement. And I know someone who was sat watching it next to me and certainly cried a lot and watched a lot and I think went through the memories as well. Have you have you recovered yet, Vicky, from, from the Lever Cup experience? Oh, it was rough. I thought I was prepared, but 
it was way worse than I anticipated. It was seeing all the other players. I mean, I said in the last episode, um, we had a Roger Federer retirement special, which is, if you haven't listened to it yet, it was a great listen. Lots of guests on loads of different stories. Um, but I said then at the time, I wasn't sure about his decision to be retiring then, but actually on reflection, it would be really special to have all the people around him playing on court with Rafa. And wow, was it special. Oh, <laughs> seeing Rafa in in such a state, that was, that was me gone, finished me off, <laughs> as I think it did a lot of people. And I think the subtleties of it as well, and I don't think that can ever be recreated. I, I saw I saw an interview with Novak Djokovic today, and he said that he would like when he eventually retires, you know, to have all his rivals around him as well as his family. But the way that it, it kind of organically happened, uh, and 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 the little clips that are coming out, and and even the one I saw today, you know, when Roger's children came onto the court. That was the one time that Novak Djokovic completely went. You know, his head was in his hands. You know, there's lots of subtleties. He mentioned that actually when he was interviewed after his his singles match. He said that was the moment that really got him. And I think it's just good for us to remember that there is more to life than than hitting a, a fluffy yellow tennis ball over the net and in between the lines and sometimes we can get so caught up in that world that we think that is the most important thing but it ultimately will come down to connections relationships and and to see that flourish with such vulnerability I think in in front of our eyes was 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 very special and we once again wish, obviously, Roger Federer the very best. He's going to continue giving the game a lot. But if I bring it back to Ryan, because Ryan gave his time and he was out in Seoul in Korea and he did actually go on. He, he lost in last round qualifying, got in his lucky loser. And he's he's having a fantastic year. So many things to take from from the conversation. And... You know, you said to me, Vicky, often when these when these episodes start, we talk about people's stories, which is great to hear, but this one got us from the word go. Yeah, to hear about Ryan talking about his cancer diagnosis at such a young age. I mean, in some ways fortunate that he can't remember too much about it, but, you know, he, he talked about the side effects from that in terms of his delayed growth and the impact it had on his on his parents and how that has maybe strengthened their relationship I think it makes his journey from being so ill at such a young age to now professional tennis player even more impressive and like he said it's made him who he is today you've just said as well Dan um you know there is more to life than hitting a yellow fluffy tennis ball around a court and having the perspective that he's had on life having been through that I wonder if that is giving him an advantage now you know i think i think trauma in general does you know whether we whether we like it or not you know you just got to look look at the history books in in some ways there's there's a, there's a lot of people that have come from quite traumatic experiences that have then developed mental toughness and i'm not just talking about tennis here talking about in life that, that and that's not to say you can't be mentally tough if you if you haven't had a trauma but but quite often these things can be to the advantage of of the person if used in the right way you know and I, and I think perspective is the right word you know and tennis 
perspective is is everything actually because you're unless you are a generational talent who who gets everything put on a plate from a very early age because you're just so good you are gonna go through hell and back you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have such difficult moments and you're gonna have so many doubts and fears and questions and why am I doing this and is this the right thing for me and why I don't have any money and I'm wasting my money and my friends are doing this and my friends are doing that and and you're gonna challenge it and 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 I think people that tend to have a bit of a bigger purpose a bigger a bigger picture that they are playing for tend to be the ones that find that inner strength and you know that brings me on to probably my biggest learning from from this conversation is is this whole concept of life being a continuum you know and, and continually learning continually getting better and you know if we go through Ryan's ranking which is a byproduct of the work that's put in his his ranking has gradually progressed each and every year and and he talked about it a lot day in day out you know can he get a little bit better today a little bit better tomorrow and and continually doing that and and when the playing career comes to an end it's the same thing because it's not then a big dramatic change it's just okay well i i continue to get a little bit better and the next day comes along and i keep putting that work in and i have no doubt that somebody like ryan peniston will will go on and have a fantastic career after his playing because of that perspective because of that mindset and that outlook that he's not catastrophizing things which we can all be guilty of doing so i think that that mindset that freshness of mindset was was great to hear i think we learn a lot about the mindset of a player from an interview and and i certainly see him continuing to to make those progressions on the court and when eventually time comes for him to move into a different area i'm sure he's going to continue to be successful and progress as a person as well as a tennis player well we'll certainly be uh, following and backing him from afar and i'm personally looking forward to seeing the hashtag screw you dan <laughs> yeah and me too me too as well you know i get i get paid well i don't get paid actually to do this but if i did get paid i'd get paid to make and ask those questions you know and, and and i think it is as ryan said it's a valid question you know there's been plenty british players over the years that have made their name on the grass courts they've they've had their big results now granted it's often just one big result you know ryan has 6 7 8 to build on and 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 i personally think I will be seeing screw you Dan because I think he is the real deal I think we're going to see a top 100 player for the next few years and in order to do that you have to do it on the different surfaces and Ryan I have no doubt I have complete faith in you um, but I am expecting still to see the hashtag and as Dan said at the start it's international podcast day to day which has given us a couple of minutes just to kind of take a step back and have a chat about our year and how much we're still enjoying the show and and how much Dan's chats we how much we're getting from them really and and learning all the time um and just an opportunity as well to say thank you to you for listening and tuning in and I hope you're learning as much as we are as well and next week we have Eric Buterak coming to the show and and when we talk about continuous progression 
he's a great one because he's he's a few years ahead of Ryan Penniston, but a similar sort of story, you know, went to, went to college, US college, actually went to a Division Three US college, went on to, to be a Grand Slam finalist in, in doubles, you know, had a fantastic doubles career and has then gone on now, he's been tournament director in Cincinnati over the last 12 months and also as the the director of player liaison manager for, for the USDA. So someone that continues to grow will bring a brilliant insight. So that's a one to look forward to. And as ever, lots more guests coming your way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>